everyone for uh, joining us. And uh, so this is our first part to become the CFO virtual event. We've been doing a whole bunch of uh, live events, and I've had the chance to uh, you know speak with a bunch of great CFOs from companies like Salesforce and Robinhood and Okta and and many more, and kind of hear about their journey and, and path to uh, becoming a uh, CFO. And but I've always wanted to provide a more well-rounded perspective to that job, right? So because CFOs are working with board members, they're working with uh, CEOs, they're working with executive recruiters who are helping them find that next uh, CFO role or first CFO role. And so this is one of those opportunities where we have uh, Alfred, who is a partner at uh, Sequoia Capital. And Alfred is especially interesting because he brings both operating and investing experiences. For the, at least the last 10 years, been a very experienced uh, board member. He's on the board of companies we've all heard of, like Airbnb and DoorDash and House and uh, many more. And uh, you know, before that, he was an operator, and you know, and what most of you might not know is that he was a CFO himself, right? So he's been in finance leadership roles, COO roles at companies like uh, Zappos and Tell Me and uh, Nick Exchange, and I think just between the three of them, they've had exits worth of about uh, two billion dollars. So uh, Alfred brings a lot of uh, experience, both as an operator and an investor. I'm going to focus a little bit more on the board member uh, side of his uh, experience today. But I'm thrilled to have uh, Alfred with us and thank you for joining us, Alfred. Thank you for having me. Really excited. Awesome. Great, let's, uh, let's just dive right in. So let's, let's start with uh, you know, your background. You actually studied math and you studied statistics and how does somebody with that background end up in the CFO role? So tell us that story. Yeah, it's a, my journey is a bit random. I started, um, I, I actually thought I was going to be working uh, in a, in the hedge fund industry. I was studying how to price derivatives. I took a class from uh, Robert Merton um, at, when I was at Harvard. Uh, he was teaching a class called Continuous Time Finance. He then later on went on to win the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on Continuous Time Finance. He was also the advisor to Long Term Capital, and I asked him for a job at long-term capital and he said, well, I can get you a job as a lowly analyst, but maybe you should go get a PhD in statistics or in math or in computer science or in physics uh, or in economics and then come back um, and, and then work at a higher level. So I came out here in, um, to study um, statistics. I was in a PhD program and my, my long-term sort of friend and um, not classmate because he was, he graduated a year later uh, at Harvard. Um, uh, Tony Shea came out here and started a company called Link Exchange, and I was the first basic finance person for them because they didn't know what a what a finance person did anyway, and neither did I. And so they're like, "Well, you're good with numbers. You you can probably figure this out, and you're smart. You can figure this out. So why don't you start uh, being our VP of finance and and CFO?" Got it. So that's how so, I started. Uh, um, and it, it was a big learning and learning adjustment. But it's someone, as someone who never took an accounting class, I had to figure out accounting. I had to learn about accounting. I had to learn about revenue recognition. I had to learn about like just basic budgeting and spreadsheet. Uh, I had to use Excel for other reasons, more as a sort of a, a, con, a CRM system or as, as a database. I learned how to use Excel. Um, but I, I learned quickly that um, these skills are like 
yes, you mentioned I didn't have an audit background or investment bank, investing banking background, but these things are taught. They're in lots of books. You can learn these things. You just need the time to go learn them. And so the basics of being a, uh, the basics are, you have to get the basics right, but the basics are something you can go learn. Got it. And so, you know, over that uh, journey uh, in your career, you started as, you know, someone who didn't know a lot about finance, you learned, and you progressively took on uh, larger and larger responsibilities as an operator, as a CFO. And, but now since you've had the chance to work with lots of other CFOs in your portfolio companies, and what do you think about that? You know, a lot of uh, uh, the people in who are listening today are up and coming finance leaders, right? So they are, uh, they are VP of finance. And how do you think of someone who is, uh, what is the difference in your mind between a VP of finance and a CFO? How are those roles uh, different on a day-to-day -day kind of operating level? Yeah, I think if you wanted to sort of just map out um, skills and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, it, you know, in the base level, you need to be able to close the books and count and do basic analysis. And um, at the second level, you need to be able to meet, uh, you need to think about problems in different levels of abstraction. And, ex and figure out what level of extraction is the right level to do the analysis. Um, and I, I find that uh, finance people who are maybe managers or directors don't get to the VP level because they don't know the right level of analysis. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's much better if you can think at many, many levels of abstraction and then figure out which level you should go to. That's probably more of a director or a um, finance level. Um, and then a VP of finance would just look at the analysis and say, this is the right level of abstraction. Uh, this is the information. And I think a CFO would think about it as, how do I tell the story? Um, I think many VPs of finance can get to the analysis and get to the right level of abstraction, but they can't tell the story. And the story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and I think many people forget that. The beginning is talking about what, how we got here. The middle is the analysis that you did and the conclusions of it. And the end is like, what are you gonna do about it? How are you gonna monetize this report? I like using the word, how, do you like to, how are you going to monetize this report? Because I think many people in finance produce beautiful, insightful reports. But the reports are useless if you can't monetize it. Um, and I, I think that element makes you closer to being a CFO than being a VP of finance. But, and, and that's just on the analysis side. You can say the same thing about fundraising. You can say the same thing about influencing operators inside the organization. But there's, that, there's those three levels where you need to be able to monetize whatever analysis or whatever recommendation you need to, that you have come up with. And that what, that's what really makes you a CFO. Got it. And let's just dig into that. Like what makes a high performance CFOs, right? So you talked about some of the patterns that you've seen, uh, uh, you know, at least a difference between somebody who's at the lower level versus somebody who operates at the level of a CFO. But, you know, in your experience over the last 20, 25 years, what are the other common patterns you've seen in the high quality CFOs that you've had the chance to work with? So um, 
as a so so let's talk about inside the building outside the building sort of let's break this up inside the building when you're sort of working with other managers you're working with other people i think one there there are a few traits that i think are important for a high performance cfo back to the love, right level of abstraction you need to be able to talk to someone at the right level um they're they're a director they're thinking about this in in a director level, mid-level sort of analysis or mid-level sort of budget, you need to be able to think at their level and give them recommendations as opposed to, I'm just thinking about how high level, I, I wanna, I, we need to cut marketing expense by 20%. I don't care how you get there. It's not really useful for someone in the organization when you just say that. You can say that to your CMO, but then the CMO has to go talk to their, you know, sort of director of marketing and say, okay, oh, do we cut 20% across the board or should we be more surgical and strategic about it? And the CFO is, would of course say, let's be more surgical and strategic about it. But if you can't go down that level and speak to the rest of the organization at that level, you're not going to be very effective. Um, the other thing I think is, is important for a CFO is to realize uh, they really don't have a lot of power. Like it, they, yes, they kind of plan and they say how much you can spend and they think they have power. And actually it's the wrong, if you're a, if you're a CFO that uses power to influence, you're usually not a great CFO. You have to sort of take it from a point of view of partnering and knowing that all the things that have to get executed are executed outside of your organization. And so being able to influence people uh, is very, very important. Um, and influencing is, you know, it's sort of, it's one thing early in your career, like you, as a financial analyst, you, you're, oh, you need to influence because you, again, you're reminded you have no power, you need information from other, other organizations, other people. And so in some ways, junior finance people understand this concept way more than CFOs. Once you become a CFO, you think you have power, but you really don't. Outside um, the organization, I think there, uh, uh, sorry, and this is probably inside and outside. I think it's really important for high performing CFOs, they have really good judgment. They have really good business judgment. It's not just financial judgment and good judgment comes from um, past learnings uh, it comes from understanding the business extremely well, but it also comes from um, both a level of thinking fast and thinking slow. Thinking fast is relying on pattern recognition, things that you've seen before. Thinking slow is first order thinking. And I think a lot of okay CFOs have a playbook. They have a way that you do something um, they have a way of doing planning, for example. They have a way of doing a deck to raise money. And the highest performing CFOs kind of have that as a framework, not as a playbook. Uh, and I think the difference is that the framework allows you to change things and a playbook is a playbook. You just go make these plays. Um, and I think original thinking differentiates you from a high performing CFO from a okay performing CFO. And the original thinking is also what allows you to have better judgment than your peers. And so that's both inside and outside. And then outside the building stuff is 
you know, one of the things I think good CFOs do is understand what's in their control and what's out of their control. And you and you you can't it you can't uh, there's no excuses for things that are out uh, that are in your control, the organizations can control. And so every single form of analysis related to that you have to get right. On the outside of the building, things that are outside of control, your your job is to anticipate um, what may happen. What should we do if this happens? Um, I think in the last, you know, sort of 10 years, most CFOs had a plan and an upside plan. They never had a downside plan. I think today, I think we have many different levels of downside plan and almost no upside plan. Um, but being able to anticipate those things beforehand is dealing with the things that are outside your control. And then, and then outside your organization, I think one of the things that back to the level of abstraction, talk to people outside the company. Um, there are CFOs who think that their job is to downplay everything and always, you know, sort of beat whatever forecast that they send out. There's a tight range around that, which is like if you if you're always beating, you know, some of the sort of interesting companies, they beat by a penny or two and they consistently do that. That's that's people trust you because they know that you're you're conservative, but you're you're within range. If you just sandbag completely, you're going to lose credibility, too, at some point. And so I think having a level of understanding of your audience and how to speak to them um, within the right range is fairly important. Got it. And that's helpful. So uh, now moving on in, in another uh, direction is around the CEO-CFO partnerships, right? And so in all of the relationships that you have seen, uh, you know, how do they split up responsibilities? And for example, how did you do it at Zappos with Tony? Well, I think Tony wanted to be, um, he, he cared much more about external. He cared about products. He cared, so I, I ended up, I started out as CFO and became CEO, but largely the relationship was such that whatever Tony didn't want to do, I ended up doing. And so in terms of a good CEO, CFO, CEO, whatever partnership, I think executive teams fill each other's holes. Um, I think that that relationship is very different for different people and different teams. Um, I don't think there's a standard for filling each other's holes, but in some sense, um, you want diversity of skill set, you want diversity of ideas, you also want diversity of ways of thinking. Often, Tony and I would think about a problem from diff two different angles and still end up close to the same conclusion because we're thinking about it from different ways. And, you know, putting it in finance speak, you do top down, you know, sort of planning, you do bottoms up planning, you do top down sort of analysis, you do bottoms up analysis. And, the best analysis, those things converge to the same answer. And the same is true with a good management team. Like you should be able to have people with completely different frameworks and different ways of thinking about a problem and still end up to the same order of magnitude, same ballpark sort of um, conclusion. And that's, I think, is a good example of a good well-oiled management team when you can have that. Because then you know you've looked at the problem from a 360 degree view as opposed to only one view. You're less likely to miss things. And if they don't match, just like your bottoms up analysis and top down analysis don't match, something is wrong. Someone's logic is wrong. Somewhere in the analysis is wrong. 
Um, and so, so that's a very sort of a simple way of breaking down whether you have a good relationship between your management team members. The other way is over time, you can anticipate how they think. Um, and you can anticipate their, the flaws in their thinking and you can anticipate when you think a certain way, they're going to call you out on ways that you are missing this or that and be able to anticipate that level of thinking. And people talk about completing each other's words. I, I think about completing each other's logical steps um, because I think that's way more powerful um, in terms of being able to sort of collaborate. Um, because you can anticipate the way that they're breaking it down a problem. Got it. That's great. Now, you know, when you're a CFO, you're probably delegating a lot. Yes, FPNA is being taken care of by someone on your team. Then you have, might have a controller that you're working with or other aspects. If you were to you know, step back and think about what is the, the one single most important responsibility that a CFO cannot delegate that they own? Um, I think it's different at different stages. I think, you know, you, there's no excuse for running out of cash when you're a startup. If you're the CFO, um, that's probably not something you delegate, the fundraising process, making sure you have enough cash, et cetera. I also think that it's different for different, different ways you became a CFO. So if you primarily grew up in financial planning and analysis, you're probably not, you're, that's the thing that you're going to give up the last. So you, you might delegate, you might make sure you have a great controller, you might make sure you have a good, you know, sort of treasury person and, and all that. But yes, you'll hire some people in finance, but you're, you're going to review every single forecast. Um, I also think that as you get to, to sort of later stages, your job becomes a lot about partnering with the rest of the organization and partnering with your investors on the outside. So almost all of the work is delegated, but you don't delegate the relationship. Um, and so there's relationship building and making sure that you start being able to anticipate different functions and how they think about the problem um, and, and things like that. And, you know, in, if you, even if you're a public company uh, and you have a strong IR team, you just don't delegate the relationships with some of your larger shareholders, the most important influential analysts, et cetera, et cetera. So um, again, it's not a clear answer because I think it depends on stage. Um, Got it. But I think the most important thing uh, is to think about your job as how do you get the most leverage? Um, I, I always find it interesting that people want to see whatever CXO titles and like, yeah, it, you get to have a CXO title when you think about your X as an L. Uh, and I call, uh, and, and then people then ask me, what do you mean by L? It's like leverage. How, how do you get the most leverage out of yourself and the organization? And those things you, you have to own. Um, and, and I don't mean leverage in the, you know, debt finance point of view. I just, I mean, like, how do you like, you take a dollar and how do you make as much money out of it as possible? Or you take a relationship and how do you make the most out of it? Um, and I think being a good CFO and being, that, that is probably the thing that you, you delegate the least, thinking about how to be the most optimal business that you can, think about the, you know, sort of 
the relationships that you have to make that happen, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Got it. Now, awesome. Now, now let's talk a little bit about the typical failure modes for CFOs, right? And so I'm assuming in general cases, you try not to, as a board member, at least you try not to get too involved. That's the CEO's job to do the uh, uh, kind of uh, review of, of a CFO's performance. But let's say that you're working with a first time CEO who doesn't really have a lot of experience managing a CFO. And, uh, you know, have you ever uh, been in a situation where you had to kind of pull them aside and say, they should consider making a change and why might that have been? And what are those typical failure modes uh, for someone in the CFO role? Yeah, so I think the failure modes are wide and varied depending on, um, depending on company and stage. The, in, if you came through accounting, I think the failure mode is to think that accounting is the most important thing. Um, if you came from financial planning and analysis, I think the failure mode is the analysis and not being able to tell the story. If your failure, if you came from investment banking and consulting, your failure mode is not being able to be detailed oriented enough and something blows up in your face because you're such a good relationship person, but you don't pay enough attention to the details. Um, and I've seen this failure mode play out. Those are generalities, obviously, um, but the, the reason the pattern exists that way is like, you know, yes, you need to close. In some ways, like there's really no, there's very little forgiveness in the finance job. Um, it, it's one of those situations where um, the 80-20 rule doesn't apply. I, I, I find it odd that people talk about the 80-20 rule. Well, in general, the 80-20 rule doesn't apply, but it really doesn't apply in finance. You can't get 80% of the analysis rights or 80% of the accounting rights um, if the 20% is just completely off. Like it just, uh, so like, and I tell people this all the time, like, and this is in a different context, but if you're an entrepreneur and you get the 80-20 rule, well, you have nine, most companies fail. And so if you're the 80%, you're going to fail. And I think that's kind of true in finance. If, if you're an 80% worker, you're going to fail. Um, and your failure mode is going to be in the places that you're, you're weakest. And so I often find that, uh, the weak, you know, to plug your, your like biggest weakness, what people forget to plug is the weaknesses that they think they're good at, but they're not. Got it. And I guess the way to, uh, make sure you identify those is to empower the people around you to, uh, talk to you about those and, yeah. and you know, solicit and seek feedback, right? Yeah, for sure. And then the, the other failure mode is like working so much that you um, forget the forest from the trees. That happens a lot, right? Like you did all this work, the board meetings tomorrow, you rush, 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 and um, you got to get everything else right. But then like the board deck is not crisp. Well, is the analysis the most important thing when you're presenting to the board or the general conclusions and being crisp about what you're trying to get across? Um, and so not, uh, that's probably a level of like understanding the level of abstraction and the, how to communicate at the right level. But I, I think CFOs are more likely to be overworked. And when you're overworked, you default to what you're best at and do that first and forget what you're supposed to be doing. 
Got it. So speaking of that, working with the board topic, let's just jump into that. You talk about one area of how you can miss the you know, forest for the trees, but as a board member, like maybe this is a very broad question, so you can take it in whatever direction you want, but what are you looking for from a CFO when you're looking at it from a board member perspective? Well, I think, you know, so here, here's like, here's like, like beginning, middle and end. Tell me what happened in the past quarter. Why did it happen? And what are we going to do about it? And what does the future look like? I don't, I don't know if most like board decks are structured that way in, for finance. It's like they just put up a bunch of numbers and, um, you know, the, they don't even explain, you know, the commentary happens the day of, you know, this is what happened, et cetera. I was like, well, like good board decks, you could lay all that out. Why, why do you have to wait until then? The other thing I'm looking for is like, I don't know the business as well as a management team member. I think about the company. I'm a, I try to be a good board member. I try to be prepared. I read the, all the materials, but I should not ask a question that is a first order or second order question that you don't have an answer to. Um, you should have been thinking about this. So like the fact that I asked the question and it's pretty material like difference between uh, what we expected. Why don't you have a good answer for that? Um, you don't have a good answer for that. It's not, it's not great. And then I often make this um, sort of, I, I, when I was at Dapos, many of the people were afraid to present to the board and they would cram um, basically the night, uh, the night before or the two days before and try to cram as much information as possible. And you know, if you had to do that, you're probably not uh, doing your job right. Like, if you're worried about the board meeting, like you should have been worried about the quarter all throughout the quarter. Worrying about presenting to the board is really uh, silly because you're telling the story about what happened in the quarter. And so you kind of like what I'm looking for is like, well, did you take action? This is happening. Something not good is happening. Did you take some action, um, or did you wait? And the weaknesses of like waiting is like you either didn't know or you didn't think about it or you didn't know that it was going to be a problem and not knowing in any of those situations is not a good situation for a good CFO and you know so and then if you didn't know then why what are you going to do about it so that next time we can anticipate this a little better got it and i guess the related question is around uh, you know, CFOs who inherently build confidence in a board, right? So I'm assuming you had that experience over the course of your career where some CFOs are just good at making you walk away thinking, oh, you know, I, I have the confidence that this company is in good hands from a fiscal responsibility perspective and so on and so forth. And what are some patterns you've seen with those kinds of CFOs who have done a good job on that front versus not? In other words, what builds confidence in you as an investor or a board member in a CFO, in that board kind of dynamic and setting? And what are some things that might happen that make you lose confidence? I think you've touched on some of these points, but if you have any other uh, thoughts to share, that would be great. Yeah, I think the best companies that I work with, the, the CFOs um, are in constant contact with the board. One thing that I think is a slight different relationship in CEOs don't love this is that the best CFOs 
have a direct relationship with the board. Um, and I tell the CFOs, like, you do report to the CEO. Don't forget that. Don't try to, like, build a relationship with the board so that you can undermine the CEO. If you do that, I lose confidence in you as well. So your job is to, to walk that fine line where you report to the CEO, but you kind of have to have a good relationship with the board. And I'm in constant contact with CFOs at um, the best companies. Um, and they're constantly sort of thinking about the business and how to refine the business. And I, I get just as, I get more pings obviously from the founder CEO than I do from the CFO, but if there's an issue, I never, I'm never surprised at the board meeting. I know about it the day of, the week of, the month of, as opposed to waiting until the board meeting. Um, it's almost like um, pre-announcing your, your numbers before you, you have to. The other, the other thing that I find good CFOs do with the board is they just share the monthly, I have to wait until the end of the um, quarter to show the financials, even at a large company like Airbnb, they just share the monthly and monthly financials, they share the weekly metrics, they, they share the daily metrics. I have pretty good dashboards and for most of my companies. Um, and so I'm not surprised, they're not surprised. The question is whether those dashboards are good dashboards or not. And, and I think the best companies I work with, the dashboards, there's a level of consistency and then there's a whole bunch of stuff that changes all the time because they're trying to figure out which ones should be the consistent metrics and which ones are like, we're gonna try these out, uh, we're gonna measure them because we missed this or that. And they're like, yeah, actually this doesn't matter, we're gonna deprecate them. There's some, if it's changing all the time, it doesn't give you a good view. If it's never changing, you're going to miss something. That balance um, and just thinking, just looking through the dashboards, I can tell whether someone's a good CFO or not by just how dynamic uh, and consistent and uh, that uh, that dashboard is. It's a, it's the balance that is interesting. And then um, another sign of a good CFO. Um, to me is when they're working with the board. If you're going to go and present a, a problem, you dug deeper than anybody else. So it, a good CFO is also an, uh, an archaeologist. You dig, dig, dig until you find the answer to the problem. You might have to dig in a hole and decide to stop digging because you, you have to go look for another hole to dig. But you get to the, you get to the source of truth. Um, and you get to the primary source of truth. Um, and I, I get confidence when I see those kind of behaviors. Got it, got it, that's great. So on a related note, right? So you talked about that fine line between CFOs engaging with the board directly while not undermining the CEO. Uh, you know, we have seen some of those kinds of issues in the recent past, right? So the corporate governance issues and uh, you know, WeWorks failed IPO and all that kind of stuff. And uh, maybe, you know, you might not have any inside information about that. But in general, how do you view a CFO's responsibility in establishing, you know, good, reliable governance structures in an organization? And as a board member, how much do you rely on a CFO to do that versus, say, it's a CEO's job? Or how do you think about that? I do, I do think the CFO's job is to check, um, to be a check on, on anything related to, Board governance and if 
if you see any impropriety uh, at the company, your job is to report it to the board. Uh, usually it gets reported to the audit committee if the board is filled out and you have an audit committee, but if you don't, your, your job is to report it to the lead director of the, of the company and tell them, hey, I think this is not right. Um, I, I didn't work with WeWork, I don't know enough about it, but I think the issues related to corporate governance, some of them has to do with the business hype, and then some of it has to do with not reporting uh, the right results. That's unforgivable. Um, some of it has to do with bad judgment. Um, and I think, you know, your job is to like balance conservatism and aggressiveness and to, to see both sides. And um, the sort of judgment standpoint is hardest. When you see clear impropriety, it's your job to report it. Um, and so I, I think corporate governance is kind of a weird situation because every, you know, in some ways boards almost never throw anybody under the bus. Um, everybody, everything is hunky-dory until something crashes and burns. Um, but it doesn't work that way. Like you, you're a CFO, you know, the, you know the trajectory of the business, should have been pointing those th things out in between. Like you don't go from flying, you know, sort of a rocket ship to crashing without seeing some trajectory changing. And um, I think it's your job as a CFO to do that because your, your job is to understand the trajectory. Got it. That's great. So I want to quickly ask you some questions about the recruitment process and how you as a board member get involved. But I want to quickly remind also people that if you have questions, there's a Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window. Please go ahead. I see some coming in already. Please go ahead and ask those. I'll get to those uh, in, in a couple of minutes here. But uh, as for the recruiting process, right? And so when you are interviewing as a board member, a CFO candidate, what are you looking for specifically? I'm assuming core technical skills are mandatory, right? But other than those, what does your typical interview process when you're uh, interviewing with CFO look like? Yeah, some of the questions I ask are, you know, sort of, well, one, if I tell you my tricks, then you, you can't use them again. So, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite questions to ask all finance people, whether I, I was recruiting um, someone who's going to be a financial analyst or a director or but VP or finance, uh, the CFO is like, tell me about the most complicated analysis that you've done. Um, and they'll go on and on about the analysis and how great it was. And, you know, this is the first, you know, I did this thing and it's the first time I've ever seen it. Um, you know, I had someone tell me about how great their cohort analysis was and, and, and how precise it was for predicting the future. And, and then, and then that was the end of the conversation. And I'm like, hmm. And then I have to ask the follow-up question. And really what I was looking for with the most complicated analysis is in, for a CFO is a understanding that the most complicated analysis is not about the analysis, it's about the conclusion and what you did about it. Um, and so that's the bridge that I, I ask or I'm trying to find is like, how did you actually influence the organization to do something different? Because in, in most situations, the complicated analysis is not well understood by the rest of the organization. It might help you get to the truth, back to the uh, 
digging until you get to the source truth. But how did you explain it? How did you get the organization to believe in it? How did you get the organization to change behavior? At, and at the end of the day, how did you end up monetizing that analysis? Um, that is probably what I'm looking for when, I'm, when I ask that question, especially from a CFO. Um, how I get involved with, um, with board recruitment, I think the better the CEO, the easier the, the recruiting is for a CFO. The, a great CEO knows, uh, has screened a bunch of people. They kind of know the different archetypes that they, um, of a CFO and know what they're looking for, what the organization needs. And my job as a board member is, okay, are there any blind spots that the CEO missed? Um, and then whether I believe the CEO and the CFO will have a good working relationship, um, whether this person has good ethics and is um, trustworthy, and most of it is selling um, as a board member. I don't, as you said, I don't get involved with, a, you know, sort of evaluating whether the person can do the basic elements of the job. I do care a lot about um, being able to talk to investors, being able to sort of tell the story, um, being able to take complicated problems and simplify it. Um, and I, I think there are varying degrees of abilities of CFOs to be able to take a complicated situation and simplify it. And, and then the, the sort of the final thing, which I think is fairly important is an enthusiasm for the business. I, I, I think we, we grow up thinking we get our credibility by saying how bad the business is and pointing out all its problems. But at the end of the day, you know, it, there is an element of a sales job for being a CFO. You're raising money, you're giving con confidence to the employees and to the investor base. Um, so you have to be able to see all the warts in the business and be able to sort of see a through line on why the company is still worth betting on. Got it. That's great. So last question in recruitment, you know, this question around first time CFO versus not, right? So when would you actually recommend a company say not hire somebody, you know, VP finance, you know, has a good level of experience there, but Maybe they're up for their first CFO job. And when is, is that merely a matter of stage of company or are there other elements as you think about when you might say, we don't want a first time CFO and, and what impact does that have on the opportunities people get, I guess, is the underlying question. Well, as a person who came up through finance, I, um, I feel for the first time CFOs are trying to break through because everybody wants to, everyone wants the CFO to have whatever level of experience, et cetera. So I am the least um, against first time CFOs. Um, I do think that if you have a CEO who doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in investor base or uh, then, then I think you probably want a second time or third time CFO that knows how to speak to investors. But in general, I don't, I don't think first time, second time CFO, are all that different. Um, having gone through the process is nice, but you know, we work for startups, right? Like this community works for startups. If we only bet on people who have done it before, we wouldn't fund startups, right? 
many of the founders are doing it for their first time or their second time or or they're doing it for the first time in a different industry <laughs> like like you you're doing this it's a completely different industry from the the company that you started in the past so i just i, I think you know the desire to your innate traits are more important than the experience i think how you incorporate the experience is what's important um and i would not hire a a multi-time CFO if all they did was like the same thing over and over again and try to put them somewhere else, right? Like that doesn't make a lot of sense either. Um, I wouldn't put a SaaS, like a lifetime SaaS CFO that have taken a company public a few times into a consumer company because they probably think that they know everything about SaaS and have a specific playbook and won't adjust their playbook. Got it. That's great. So Fred, this is all, you know, really helpful. I'm gonna, I want to make sure we have enough time to get to the uh, audience questions and uh, let me jump into some of them. For example, Winston uh, is asking, how do you make that decision? What are the checkpoints a startup needs to identify when you need a CFO versus when VP of finance is, is sufficient? And when would you say it's too early to hire a CFO? And in general, what is the advice you're giving a CEO about these things, right? I think it has to do with the level of sophistication about the organization around finance. Um, and like, if you're pre-product market fit, you definitely don't need a CFO. If you're ramping sales, you probably still don't need a CFO quite yet. If if you got problems across the organization um, and there's a lot more coordination across the organization, then you need a CFO. Um, but you know, look, if you're a startup and you're building the product and you're doing finance, you basically, your expenses are headcounts uh, and you're um, trying to understand a SaaS business model, which is pretty predictable. I'm just not sure you need a CFO for until you get to 20 or 30 million in ARR. In a consumer business, I do think that um, understand, like the CFO is, ends up being more of a data analyst. Um, Data science and, and the CFO organization may blend a bit more. Um, so you might need it a, a, a bit earlier. You might be in a situation where understanding the user metrics and predictability of that is more important than the actual revenue levels uh, because understanding that model is what leads you to predict revenue. Um, then the complexity, I, I'd say the answer to, to your question is more about the complexity of the business and the problem that you're trying to solve than it is about the size, shape of the organization. Got it. And so there are a couple of questions around the, how do I know if I'm ready? I've been doing the controller job for a while. I've been doing the VP of finance job for a while. Uh, and one, how do I know I'm ready for that CFO role? And two, what are the typical ways in which uh, the tactics of how potentially you get offered that CFO uh, job and how do you be smart about that? I guess that's the underlying question. So I don't, <clears throat> I, I, I'd answer the question slightly differently. If you're questioning, then nobody's going to give you the job. You have to have confidence in yourself that you can do the job. The way Got sort it. of you should check internally whether you can do the job is to just do the job, just start taking over. Um, and, you know, if you're a controller and this is like basic stuff and you got everything under control from an accounting perspective, start doing more of the financial analysis and explaining to people what's going on. Start asking, asking, you know, asking to sort of present to the board on what's going on and some problems that you see and all that kind of stuff. And, 
that's the only way you're going to know that you're ready because you're going to go through those um, trials and errors and, and figure out that you can do it. Um, and then get feedback from others. Like, I, I, I think the, the interesting thing is in Silicon Valley, everybody has always wanted to help. You have to ask. Like you go to a board meeting and you get no feedback and like, how come I got no feedback? Everybody says, great job. It's like, no, you, you can't ask, how did I do? You have to ask, what, what did you like? You got to ask more active questions. It's the same thing that you do when you do budget planning and analysis. You're just like, these numbers are off. You can't say, what happened? <laughs> you have to ask, okay, so specifically, where did we, uh, where did we overspend? Uh, you you got to be much more pointed about the question that you ask. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to get general feedback, and the general feedback is not helpful. And it's just like the general answers to questions around why did we go off plan is not helpful. You got to dig a bit deeper. Uh, so apply your detective skills and your investigative skills and your you know, sort of archaeology skills that you do for your business uh, as a finance professional and do it for your own career. Got it. And so a couple of other questions around the learning process. Maybe this is especially relevant to you, given that you had to go through that process yourself. If you come from more of an accounting background and you have to learn about the analysis and FP&A and all of that, or vice versa, what, did, what was the process and journey you went through? How did you learn? Was it just doing the job? Was it reading books? Was it mentorship? And did you seek out mentors? And what was your learning process uh, you know, in those dimensions that you weren't uh, kind of uh, really good at? Yeah, so I think they're, they're different. People learn differently. And so I, I don't want to prescribe the way I learn. I will tell you that I was a, I, I learned from primarily going to the source and the truth and from best practices. So, you know, I, you know, obviously there are plenty of accounting texts. So I, I had a different path than what you mentioned, but I had to learn accounting. So like kind of just try to get the best accounting sort of sources I down figured out what they taught at Stanford and Harvard for first year MBAs on accounting and try to understand that um, and knew that that was high level and it wasn't going to be deep enough and when I needed to understand revenue recognition I went to the source so there's the best practices and what are what are the sort of experts try to learn at a quick high level and then there's the ability and desire to go to the source truth and back to like thinking fast and slow, like trying to get the high level quickly is thinking fast and going to good sources where they have this like nailed and then going to the thinking slow, you go to the source truth and yes, it's more, it's slower. You got to read through all this junk, but you got to work through it. Um, and I think the same is true. If you were going from accounting to finance, like, what are the best board decks? What are the best reports? How do they visualize this? It's not about the numbers. You know it's not about the numbers when you go from accounting to finance. It's like, what are the best dashboards? Like, go get some of those things. And then you find out that the best CFOs, like, think about their business so much that they come up with their own metrics about the business that is different from everybody else. And so, yes, you present ARR because you're a SaaS business or you present cohort retention because you're a consumer business, but that's the standard stuff. What, when you go down a level deeper, 
how do you want to envision your customer funnel? How do you want to envision your, yes, some of it can be standardized, but the best companies don't just utilize that. They make it their own. Um, and so being willing to go to the source truth is fairly important. Got it. And so there are a couple of questions here as for that probably are asking you to be a bit of a therapist, but the question is how, if your CEO or other people in your management team aren't super finance literate, right? How does a finance leader deal with that? And how do you make sure that you are educating the rest of the, uh, you know, management team about the importance of understanding the financials and how, how, how would you think about that? Well, I think, I think make it, you know, make it interesting and exciting. Back to telling the story. Like you cannot get someone to want to understand the, the three statements without first telling the story about the business and then showing them the PL. The next time show, show them the balance sheet, but the next time after that, show them why the cash flow statement is important. And then maybe they'll actually look at the cash flow statements. But you you gotta break up the problem into like back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You gotta get the basics right and interesting. And then you can go to the next level and get that right and interesting. Um, I think the failure mode is like, you know, this is so important. Let me put up the PL and it's a it's a screen of numbers. It's not that interesting. Like it, people get lost. And don't forget, like we all learn from through building blocks. As a child, we we play with blocks and we learn one thing and then we learn the next. And just break it up into things that are bite-sized and understandable. I think finance is more interesting than most people think. Uh, and yes, I'm in, in the finance profession, but it's it's the the lack of creativity and desire to make it into small building blocks that that fail us. We our badge of honor is to take complexity and make sense of it. Well, I think maybe rephrase that. Our badge is to take complexity and simplify it. And if you can do that, then you can explain things in simpler ways and then people will be more interested in, in listening from you. Um, I'm often reminded by some of the best and the worst teachers I've had. And, and just think about your job as an educator. Like, the best, the, the best teachers are not the ones that just say, oh, you're stupid, you don't understand this. Like they don't make things more, they don't take a complicated situation and just leave it complex. The best teacher is like take a complicated situation and meet you where you are. Like, okay, you don't, you don't quite understand this. Let's simplify this down to a level that you can understand and build from there. Um, I'd also just encourage all of us to, you know, the best way to learn is, you know, one of the, things that I've learned over time is to always be at the edge of competency. So as you build your career to just know where you are in your competency and are you pushing yourself on the edge? And, and you know, the same is true with explaining things. Like you can't explain things to people that just aren't quite there yet. You know, do, you want to stretch them, but you're going to start with some of the basics first. Got it. Great. I will ask you one last question, which is around, you know, the difference between a CFO and a COO. You've done both jobs, right? And and how did you kind of make that transition? And uh, 
you know, is, is that a typical path that people should aspire to or how, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I think I find it a bit um, unfortunate that many great CFOs don't aspire to stay CFOs because we need, we need great CFOs and we need them to stick at their job. I think the job of a great CFO is very draining. You get, don't get a lot of resources back to the burnout issue and why some CFOs don't get to the next level is they don't have time to go do the stuff at the next level. Um, and so many great CFOs like end up becoming investors or operators. Um, there, there's an element of, um, of that where I think the CFO job is just harder. Um, and so the difference between a CFO and a CEO directly to answer your question is, um, is one of ownership. It's like you get more ownership. One, one of uh, telling about what's going on and one of taking action to own the operations of the business and the CEO like owns all of the actions, right? So um, I think many CFOs aspire to become COO than aspire to become CEO. Um, and, and that's fine. Um, everybody uh, needs to figure out their path, but if, you know, sort of a company I know and understand very well is Amazon and am many people in finance end up becoming category managers, effectively this, the general manager or the COO of a category because they understand the business fairly well. And so whether you want to do this for the long run or not, understanding your business at the deepest levels, at the most detailed level is a great uh, basis for a, a long-term career in business. Got it. Awesome. Alfred, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time. I can only imagine how uh, packed your calendar is and I appreciate you taking this time out for all of us. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can do this uh, again some other time. Have a yeah. fantastic day. Thank you. And uh, good luck with uh, all of you and your, your sort of trajectory to becoming CFO. And um, uh, hopefully this was helpful. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day.